All right, so one of the things that's really fun is showing up here on Sunday morning for our pre-service meeting at 8.45 and turning to Kevin and being like, you know what we're doing today? And he's like, man, I got it. We got it. And then every once in a while, our illustrations just perfectly align. I didn't bring visual aids. I didn't bring an actual letter. But we are going to talk about this, this practice of communication, especially written communication today. Um, and so I want to kind of get a, a broad reaching response from this group today, because one of the things that we can all acknowledge is that the advances in technology have given us numerous ways in which we can now communicate, right? We've got all these different avenues and options of how we can communicate with one another. And so I'm curious, what's your preferred avenue of communication? Let me, let me ask you that fun, would you rather question? Okay, I'm gonna give you two options. Would you rather communicate to somebody uh, by speaking with them over the phone? Or would you rather communicate by text? Okay, so let me see a show of hands if you prefer over-the-phone conversation. Okay, how many of you prefer over text? Okay, it, it looked like phone one, but I'm going to call you all liars on that. Because either that or we're just the exception to the country. The preferred form of communication nowadays is easily text messaging. Uh, it, is, it is by far... Uh, the preference, uh, uh, the statistics show us that on average, adults receive 32 text messages a day. Teenagers receive about 5,000. That part's made up, but the 32 is true. And so we see that it becomes increasingly prolific. In fact, I wrote, I wrote these down somewhere. Oh, I didn't, I didn't write them down. Uh, I believe that equates to like 18 billion per day, like several hundred billion per month and 6.5 trillion per year text messages that are exchanged within our country. That's an incredible amount. It is easily the preferred form of communication. And so what that means is that our ability to engage in written communication has drastically changed as a result of this technology. And we're having to adapt to how we communicate with this written form of technology. And so I thought it would be uh, beneficial for us to think about some text etiquette today. Um, some of the things that you wanna be mindful of when you're communicating in text. I came across this, this blog called Grammarly. They gave us a couple of points and guidance and some advice on how to text. So the first one was text unto others as you would have them text unto you, which I thought was pretty good, right? Like, don't send the novel if you don't want to read the novel, okay? Right? Just keep it short and sweet. If you're an emoji person, send emojis, right? If you want to receive the gifts, then send the gifts. But be mindful of how other, people's might, other people might interpret that as well. The other thing is be mindful of your surroundings, okay? It's frowned upon to text in the movies, and might I add church, okay? Kevin, wherever you are, right? Be mindful of your surroundings. But how many times have we been in a conversation where all of a sudden somebody interrupts the conversation so that they can answer a text message, right? And what that says to the person you're actually sitting with in that moment, right? Um, so mindful of your surroundings. Uh, another rule of thumb was that you don't have to say everything in a text, especially when you're angry, okay? If you find yourself getting heated and frustrated, let me give you some advice. Breathe, number one, and then put the phone down, right? And walk away, give it time. You don't have to try to communicate everything by text message. The other point of etiquette that I thought was interesting was about response time. How long you should respond or how long you should take before responding to a text message. It's interesting because when you have face-to-face -face communication or even over the phone communication, our responses are in milliseconds, right? And, and even if it's, especially face-to-face, -face, you can react with facial expressions, body language that gives the other person clues as to how the message is being received. We don't get any of that in written communication. Uh, but, but as a result, even though it's very different, 
text message still has this feel of it being instant dialogue. And so a lot of times we feel the pressure to respond immediately. So Google did this survey in 2018 to determine what is considered to be an appropriate amount of response time to when you need to respond to a text. And they say anywhere between 20 minutes after receiving the text to the end of the day, okay? So if you're sitting here today and you've got unanswered text messages that are beyond a day, I encourage you to use some time this afternoon to go ahead and respond. Don't do it in church, right? Let's not contradict our rules. But, but you don't want to allow an inappropriate amount of time before you go and you respond to these text messages. These, these are all examples of these different rules that we're having to adjust to now with this different form of written communication. But one of the things that really stands out to me is how different it is from the most traditional form of written communication, which is writing a letter. Right? And one of the biggest things that is different in my mind is the fact that text messaging, because it's so instantaneous, we carry a certain casualness with it, right? That, that all of a sudden, if I make a mistake and I have a typo or an ad, an, a word correct, all those different things that we're all you know, susceptible to, I can immediately change it and I can immediately clarify. But when you sit down to write a letter, you, you literally have to think about every single word before you write it. Right? Because you don't want to send a letter that's got all those erase marks and, and if you're writing in pen and then you mess up at the very end, you got to start all over and rewrite it again and then you've got like carpal tunnel going on because you never write and all this stuff. It's really painful. And so you really stop and you think about every single word. Letters are so much more intentional, right? They, they really are because of that thoughtfulness. And, and a lot of times they're not really anticipated to be a dialogue. They're really just, let me share something with you. One of the other things that I think it's really interesting about written communication in general, whether it's by text or by letter, is that one of the things that we really seek to understand is the appropriate context in which we should receive the message. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at just the basic elements of a written message. So, so when you're in grade school and you're, you're taught how to write, they say, here's how you write a letter. Start off with dear John, whatever. And then you move into the body of the letter and then it's at the very end that you give your signature, sincerely, Jeremiah Smith. Now, what's interesting about that format to me is that no matter what, anytime I get a letter, you know the first thing I do? I try to figure out who it's from. Am I alone in that? It's the first thing I do. And so a lot of times we can figure that out by an envelope. Uh, but if you don't see the name and you don't know the return address, you open it up and one of the first things do, I search at the end. So I've always felt like it kind of came out of order. That's actually one of the things I like about text messages is that as soon as it comes in, as soon as you get that notification, what's the first thing you know? Who it's from, right? It's that first point of context. When we understand who a letter is from, it it opens us up to the context, to the situation, the relationship that then is gonna help us interpret what is actually written. So I'm sharing all of this with you. It's kind of an introduction to this new series today to tell you that when we broach this, this new letter that we're gonna be studying, one of the things that I want us to keep in mind is that it is incredibly intentional, right? It is a totally different understanding of written communication than what we're used to, right? This every word matters. It's not just some casual exchange that we've grown accustomed to. But not only that, as an introduction today, we're going to take a look at just these opening lines that really answer the fundamental questions of any form of written communication, which is, who's it to and who's it from? And by answering those questions, we get a greater understanding of the context, of the tone, of the relationship, and it really sets the appropriate expectations for us to understand it appropriately. So with that being said, turn to Ephesians chapter one. And as you're turning there, I still have some more context about this particular letter as we get started today. 
today is going to be just an introduction to a new series as we start a new series today. Uh, and, and I'm just going to lay some groundwork today uh, uh, in terms of setting the tone for this particular letter. And one of the things that we first need to address is the city of Ephesus itself. What do we know about Ephesus? Uh, the, the main point that I want to make today is that this is a very affluent city and a very affluent region, right? It was seen to be one of the leading cities and one of the most uh, prosperous and wealthy parts of the Roman Empire. And so you, you had a tremendous amount of influence and importance in this particular region and city. And that, that kind of plays into some of the context that we're going to hit on here in a little bit. But in addition to that, when you start reading through this letter, you see a lot of dominant themes that begin to emerge, right? There's emphasis on the greatness of God. There's emphasis on the exalted Christ, on the unity within uh, the family of believers, the, the emphasis of church itself, right? That word ecclesia appears over and over and over again. It really is a, a letter that is written with the church in mind. So there are some really important themes. The language is really powerful. Uh, it's some of the most emotional language that you find in Paul's writings. It's almost as if he's trying to elicit a similar emotional response from his readers, right? To invite them into this praise, this, this adoration, this joy of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, you, you see a very unique structure in, in this letter as well. You see, it really kind of is divided into two parts. The first part are the first three chapters, and this part really focuses in on the identity that we carry when we follow Christ. And it's this part where we're going to kind of camp out for the Lenten season. Uh, when you think about what we've been talking through in this transition from one series to the next, for the last two months, we've been really focusing in on the power of God and understanding the power of God. But, but the transitional question that we presented last week as we entered into the season of Lent is, how is that power being impacted in your life? How is it being unleashed in your life? How is it shaping your identity? So when you go through this Lenten devotional and you're reading the Gospel of Luke, it's really this fundamental question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? How is the power of Christ shaping my life, impacting my identity? How is it being uh, put on display for others to see? Those are very similar questions to what we see in the first part of the book or the letter to the Ephesians. And so that's going to be, the first three chapters is going to really lead us to, to Easter. And then we're going to continue on the other side of it and look at the second part of, of this letter that really begins to focus in on how that identity begins to impact our relationship to one another and then how that begins to shape our, our place in the world as a body of believers, as the church. How do our commitments begin to work themselves out in those important relationships? And so that's where we're going to be on the other side of Easter leading us into the summer. So we're going to camp out here for a while, and I'm excited about it. I love this particular letter, and I think it's going to have some really great things for us to consider. Now, the other thing that I would say on the onset here as we begin to read today is that part of what you can anticipate is that Paul seems to sense something in this congregation, or at least in this community of faith, that part of what he might be sensing is some lack of awareness to the power of God that is made available to them. Right, that maybe what they're lacking is an, is an understanding of the significance that the gospel has on their life. Maybe that's because they're in such an affluent society, right? That they have all that they need or they see all the importance that is placed on, on commodities and industry and market economy and all these different things, right? But there's something that maybe they, they understand Jesus, but it really hasn't had the impact that it's needed to. Or maybe because they're surrounded by such affluence and such success, they're feeling overwhelmed, 
right? They're, they're feeling weakened. They're feeling like they're on the outs. They're feeling like they don't have those things. But whatever it is, through that weakness, through that hardship, through that despair, Paul is trying to awaken within them an understanding of how God's power has impacted their identity and their life. And that's part of what I want us to see today. And so we're going to just take a look at these opening two verses that sets the tone and helps us answer these fundamental questions of this letter. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what a wonderful way to start a letter. Uh, what a wonderful way to begin. And I want to just work through this with, with some simple uh, questions and by asking ourselves, who's this letter to and who is it from? And, and the tone that we are able to determine is set by answering those questions. And so when we ask who's it to, we see this statement, to the, to the holy people, the faithful in Jesus Christ. And what we see there is that Paul has ascribed to these people certain descriptors, right? Certain adjectives that give us an understanding of who these people are. What does he refer to them as? Holy and faithful, right? And those are the two terms that I want us to at least briefly consider this morning. And I think that's such an appropriate place for us to start because those were central terms that we talked about when we were talking about Moses and the burning bush in Exodus for the last several months, right? That when, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, one of the first things he encounters is God's holiness. And so when we've talked about this already, we understood that to be holy means to be uncommon, to be different than what is considered ordinary, to be different than that which is considered to be common. That what we defined in the book of Exodus was that this was an uncommon power that points to an uncommon God calling them to live an uncommon life. Right? That's, that's the best way to really try to identify holiness. It's different than that which is considered to be common and ordinary. And so now, fast forward thousands of years after all of that, and what we see is that the holiness of God actually exists in the holiness of his people, right? That they themselves are holy, right? God's power has left a mark. And as a result, these people, they are now living this un common life, right? Essentially what we see is that when God's power begins to work itself out in our life, we should not blend in. We should look different, right? We should, we should stand apart, right? It, it shouldn't be ordinary. It shouldn't be common. That God's power should lead us to this uncommon way in which we interact with the world. And so that's an opening question for us this morning. When you think about God's power being unleashed in your life, when you think about how it's impacted your identity, would you say that you blend into this world or you're set apart? I mean, when you really think about it, right? And it goes beyond just what you do on Sunday morning, right? How much of it do you just kind of seem like the world that exists around you? And how much of it are you truly standing out and demonstrating something that's different? Now, a lot of times we talk about holiness in, in relation to morality, Right? And, and I do believe that's a part of it. I do believe that we should act differently and behave differently. There is an, an element of morality that's at play here. But I would, I would push us a little bit further and say that holiness in particular is not so much just about morality, but desire, devotion, purpose. Right? What is it that, that motivates you? What is it that compels you day after day? 
What is it that drives you? Part of what we see is that when we are awakened to God's power, that is ultimately all that we fixate our lives on. That's how we stand apart. That the reason we pursue relationships, the reason we pursue career paths or whatever it is that God has put before us is not because of our own desires or our own ambitions, but because of his purpose and his plan and his power at work in our life. That's what makes us look different. And so is that on display, right? Is that evident in your life? That's one of the first things we see is this mark of holiness. Now, complementing that mark of holiness is this word faithful, right? This, this points us again back to one of the things that God was desiring from his people when we talked about this exchange between Moses and God at the burning bush was that he wanted them to believe in him, right? And we talked about the emphasis of importance of believing, right? That it was having this certainty in our hearts, this certainty in our lives, right? That we had this, this definition from Hebrews 11 that faith is being sure of what is hoped for and certain of that which cannot be seen. And so now we see that the people of God, that's exactly how they're marked. They're marked in holiness, in this unwavering faith, this confidence, this certainty. Now, what is the anchor of that confidence and that certainty but only Jesus Christ? That's the object of their faith. That's the object of their trust. They have come to clearly understand who Jesus is, what it was that he was sent to do, what he had accomplished for them, and that had changed everything. And so their identity was shaped by holiness and faith is yours. That's a fundamental question. We want to begin to question whether or not we're actually following Jesus, whether or not his power is evident in our life. Look for those metrics of, of holiness and faith, that certainty that points to Christ and Christ alone. Now, when we consider who this letter is written to, there's another point that I think is pretty important. Okay, and in, in order to, to discuss this, let me talk to you a little bit about how the New Testament is preserved and, and how we, we uh, kind of translate it and understand the different passages that we have. Uh, hopefully some of you are aware of this, many of you may not be, but ultimately what we have is we have just dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts, right? Manuscripts that have been written for hundreds of years, thousands of years from different regions, different places in the world, and they have and many times, uh, huge chunks of scripture, huge elements of the New Testament, sometimes just fragments, sometimes just parts. But because there are some incredibly smart people out there that look at all those things and study all those things, we can look at these fragments, we can look at these manuscripts and then put together a whole collective work, okay? But the reality is, is that a lot of times when you're trying to interpret what is in these manuscripts, they have some variations, which is why you have footnotes in your Bible, some manuscripts don't have this passage. Some manuscripts have this different word, right? So we have these explanations in our own Bible. And when you look at these manuscripts, some of them, uh, a scholar will sit there and look, okay, well, where was it written? What region was it written in? And, and what time period was it written to help determine the credibility of that manuscript, okay? All of that is to make this point to say that in some of the earliest manuscripts we have, some of the most reliable manuscripts we have, the words in Ephesus are not included, right? So in some of those manuscripts, the, the recipient is just to the holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. There is no specification to Ephesus. Now, why is that? Or what can we learn from that? Well, a couple of things that some additional research has proven is that when you read the entirety of this letter, it is one of the least situational and occasional written letters that we have. What I mean by that, 
When you compare what Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, when you compare to Philippi and all these other different letters that we have, he tends to speak to a specific issue, right? He's very personal. He references people and, and relationships and all these different things, and he's speaking to a particular situation or circumstance that they're trying to address. Ephesians is the least personal. It's more generic. It's more broad. And the reason that we think this might be the case is because when you know the city of Ephesus, this leading city, it was really kind of a hub, right? It was surrounded by 230 different neighboring communities that surrounded it. Paul lived there for at least three years, and the impact of his mission was so significant that it likely spilled out to these surrounding areas. So it's likely that Paul sat down to write this letter to send it to this region, but because he knew it was going to be circulated from one area to the next, he wrote it with less um, specificity and intended it to be circulated. And that's why we have this really beautiful letter that becomes very applicable from one generation to the next, because Paul is just saying, this isn't just what's going on with you. This is what it's like to be a believer. This is what it's like to live in community. And so, so part of what we have is this interesting context that this is, this is kind of regional. This is something that transcends time and circumstance. And, and yet at the same time, it gives us this this vision or this desire because one of the things that's known about the impact of Paul's ministry in this area was that as one scholar I was reading put it, it was impossible to pass through this region, to pass through this area and not hear what God was doing. I love that. You want to talk about a prayer for us, that it would be impossible for people to come into your life and not hear what God is doing. It would be impossible for people to not come into this church and not hear what God was doing. It would be impossible for people to pass through this neighborhood, this city, this community, and not hear what was happening as a result of his power being unleashed. That's what was going on in Ephesus. And that's what we desire here. So there's so much that we can glean from just looking at the recipients of this letter. There's, there's equally important uh, lessons for us when we consider who's done the writing, who has sent this letter, right? And so we get that in the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I love this because Paul uh, points us to this title, points us to this, this label of being an apostle. And, and so let me dive into that for a second. The word apostle comes from the Greek apostello, which simply means to send, but the important uh, thing for us to keep in mind when we consider this word for sending is that the emphasis with this word is on the one who does the sending, right? The emphasis isn't necessarily on the messenger. It's on the one who has sent the messenger. And so when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is living out so much of what God desired for Moses to see. Paul is saying, listen, I'm here, but not here by my authority, but by God's. I I'm not here by my power, but the power of Jesus Christ. He's the one that has sent me, right? And so we get it, this really great insight to this, this commissioning, this task that has been placed upon Paul. And, and in so doing, we get a pretty strong lesson for ourselves. Think back to how this commission or this task, this sending unfolded in Paul's life. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Paul, uh, get familiar. Go back and read the book of Acts. It is incredible. We, we spent quite a bit of time this last year walking through different chapters in the book of Acts. And we did have a chance to talk about Saul's conversion to Paul, right? He was initially named Saul and eventually changed his name to Paul. And that, that occurs in Acts chapter nine. Let, let me just recap some 
highlights for us this morning as we try to remember this title that he's ascribed to himself in this letter. So essentially, Saul is persecuting the church. He's antagonistic, right? He's literally condoning, approving, supporting, and seeking out the imprisonment and death of those who follow Jesus. I believe it's described that Saul was breathing out murderous threats. That's who he is, and, and that's how he's living. And he's on the road to Damascus to fulfill this when all of a sudden, God meets him on the road. A light shines, and he hears this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And and Saul responds, who are you? I have no idea who this is that's speaking to me. And that's where you get this this moment of clarification where the voice says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Go to the city and wait for further instructions. And so then Saul's blinded and he just sits and wait in complete helplessness. Now, the last time we we studied this passage, we really focused on Ananias's in, in, in his story, which is where God speaks to Ananias and says, hey, this guy that's been trying to kill all these folks, kill people like you, yeah, I want you to go talk to him. And Ananias is like, are you sure? Because I don't know that that's really something I want to do. And God says, yes, I'm sure. I want you to go. And it's in that exchange between God and Ananias that God really kind of reveals what he's going to send Paul to do. He tells Ananias, he goes, go to him because this, is, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name among the Gentiles, their kings, and the people of Israel. I'm gonna show him how much he has to suffer for my name. That's the sending, right? That ultimately what he's doing is he is sending Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, to go and proclaim his name among the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. And that's where we get this sense of of being an apostle. Now, I, I would argue that I think this word apostle does speak to a specific group at a particular moment in church history, but the essence of it, right, this idea that, that God entrusts and equips and sins with power is still absolutely at play today. That if we ended our last series with this point of making that God's power calls us, the point I want to make for us today is that God's power sends us as well. He is sending you. Right? He sends you with a task. He sends you with a purpose. And so a question you need to ask yourself this morning is, where is he sending you? And maybe your answer to that isn't geographical. Maybe it's more relational. Sometimes that impacts the geography, but the, re- the greater question is, is there a relationship? Is there a person? Is there a people that God is sending you to? That he is telling you, go and proclaim my name. That's part of what we need to see, is not only does God's power impact us in terms of holiness and faithfulness, but he sends us. So where is he sending you? I've said it before, I I don't want us to be a church that's come and see. I want us to be a church that's filled with people that are, let's go and make. Let's be released. Let's be sent out. And so where is he sending you? Now, Paul compliments this title by offering this disclaimer that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And I think that's such an incredible statement because to me, it reminds me of one of the most frequent questions I think most of us tend to ask ourselves in our relationship with Christ. What is God's will for my life? Isn't that something we always try to seek to understand? God's will. So many times it feels mysterious and elusive and people are constantly trying to understand what's What's my purpose? What is God's will for me? Have you asked yourself that question lately? How how strong of a sense do you have 
for God's will for your life, for his purpose for you? Do you have a good sense of what that looks like? You know, one of the things that I wanted to address this morning as we ask ourselves that question is, I've seen that a lot of times when we, when we begin to wrestle with God's will for our lives, we often equate it to a vocation or a job or a profession, right? So, so we find ourselves saying, well, I feel like God's called me to be a nurse or he's called me to be a teacher. He's called me to be a musician, an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, or fill in the blank. And a lot of times we equate God's, God's will for our lives to something that we are pursuing professionally. Now, I would absolutely acknowledge that God does give us clarity on things that we might want to pursue professionally, but I want to caution against wrapping so much of our understanding of his will into the thing that we do professionally or vocationally. Let me give you some reasons why. The first is this. Um, Many of you in here today, you love your job, and it's a dream job. Congratulations, if that's you. But I would also be willing to guess that there are many of you in here today you maybe don't love your job, right? That maybe you're in your career, your profession out of necessity or a set of circumstances that were beyond your control. And, and you're, you kind of have to be in that profession. And so as a result, there are seasons and moments, sometimes lifetimes that people can go through a particular profession and it becomes incredibly unfulfilling. And so when we all of a sudden equate God's will to a vocation or to a job or a career, and all of a sudden we feel like that career or that job is unfulfilling, then what does that mean about God's will? It must be unfulfilling as well. Therefore, I need to go find that fulfillment somewhere else. So we need to caution against that, right? Your profession is not directly tied to God's will. Another reason I would caution against it is because our vocations and our jobs, our careers are seasonal in the grand scheme of life. Think about the bookends around it. Right on the front end, you have this season of education, of of maturation, of growth, right before you even get a chance to pursue a career. And when we make God's will all about just a vocation, then that means the bookends, bookends of our life are filled with waiting and wandering. Because now all of a sudden, when I'm on the front end, I just have to wait and wait and wait until God's will can really be done, before I can really feel purposeful. And then I get to live in that season of vocation, and then what happens? Then I retire. And now all of a sudden, this is what I used to do, and now I have to wander and wonder, what is God's will? What is God's purpose? This thing that's defined me for so long is no longer there. What, What does it look like now? And so when we create so much emphasis of God's will into something that's vocational, we we really focus on a season and we miss tremendous opportunities to experience God's will at the beginning and end seasons of our lives. The third reason that I would caution against this putting too much emphasis on vocation and profession is because it's not biblical. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I believe you can read through the scripture and find clarity on particular professions, right? Like we know that Paul was a tent maker. We know that Jesus was a carpenter, right? But, but those are kind of footnotes, really. There's things to learn from them, but, but really the greater scriptural emphasis isn't really about vocation. But even if it was, it would still be incredibly difficult for you and I to figure out what it means for us. Let me put it this way. I can search and search and search and never find a verse that says, Jeremiah Smith, be a pastor. Right? That's not there. And you're not going to find anything specific to your vocation either. But what do we do find? What we do find are some incredible specifics about, here's what it means to be a father. Here's what it means to be a husband. 
Here's what it means to be a wife, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, right? It's not so much about the what, it's more about the who, who you are. And when there are points of emphasis about what you should do, it tends to not focus so much on a career, but on relationships. Here's how you love the neighbor. Here's how you show compassion. Here's how you show generosity. Here's how you show forgiveness. Here's how you fight for injustice. And many of those things, if not all of them, can be done in and outside of a profession and career. Right? We find numerous examples that allow us to see how those things unfold beyond just a particular vocation. Right? And so if we were to boil it all down to get a greater understanding, what is it that is God's will for your life? Guys, I'm going to give you the answer today. It's simple. And there are numerous verses I could draw from it. Let me just go ahead and pick one of the final instructions Jesus gives us. Go into all the world. Make disciples. That's it. And you can do that selling water bottles or arguing law degree, whatever it is. You can do that in any context. But the reality is that maybe, just maybe, the reason that's so hard for us to get over our, our discomfort with evangelism and reaching out to others is because that's exactly what the devil wants to get in the way. Because that's where we find ultimate fulfillment, to go and radically love others, to go and invest in them and show them the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and make disciples. That's the what. So when we look at the scriptures, it's not about just a vocation. God's will is for us to live in a certain measure of holiness and faithfulness and go and make disciples. It's really clear. And so even just in this introduction of who's this to and who's it from, we get some incredible reminders of how God's power impacts our lives and shapes our identity. Now, here's where I want to close. This is what I want to conclude with. Let's say we discover God's will. Let's say we begin to really wholeheartedly pursue that and we begin to live that out. Part of what we see when we think back about how this manifested itself with Saul and ultimately Paul was this reminder, right? I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. We saw it with Moses at the burning bush, didn't we? Hey, listen, you're going to do some incredible stuff, but you're going to find resistance. Pharaoh is not going to believe. Right? Over and over again, throughout the passages of Scripture, we're told and taught and reminded, this is not easy. Hardship, suffering, trial, difficulty, all these things are all but assured to be a part of our experience of following Jesus. Right? When we discover God's will, we can anticipate hardship and, and obstacles and trials Those shouldn't surprise us. But part of what we see in the tone that's established in this letter is that though we may face those things, right, though though we can anticipate those things, when we encounter them, they bring us into greater proximity of the promises of God that we discover when we truly build our lives upon his power and upon Jesus Christ. And what are those promises that Paul points to at the very beginning of this letter? Grace, in peace. And what a beautiful reminder that when we pursue God's will, when we pursue having our identity shaped by his power, what we discover is how sufficient his grace really is, right? That it's not in our abilities. It's not because he's looking down on you going, man, look at, 
look at all this incredible stuff that you're going to be able to accomplish. No, it's in your weaknesses. It's in your mistakes. It's in your imperfections. It's in those trials that he is going to produce character, perseverance, endurance. And you're going to rediscover the sufficiency of God's grace. His love is sufficient for all circumstances. He's not waiting for you to get better, waiting for you to pretty yourself up. He's saying, just as you are, I can use you. In fact, because of your imperfections, I can draw you into others that need to know and experience this amazing grace. That's one of the promises that is made available to us when we seek his power to be revealed in our lives. And right there with it is this concept of peace. We think about the storms of life. You think about how Jesus says, when you listen to my words, and you don't just listen, but you actually put them into practice, you're like a wise builder who builds their house on the rock. Now, when you fail to put them into practice, you, you build a house on sand, and when that storm comes, then your house is gonna fall. But you listen to me, you trust me, you follow me, then you're gonna have a stable and sturdy foundation that's gonna allow you to stand in the midst of the storm. One of the most incredible mysteries that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that the storms vanish, but when they come, we have a strength that allows us to stand strong and we find peace. Do you realize how incredible that is? Do you, do you realize how much our world needs that? Like if we just look around, not just to the, to the stories that we hear on the news, but the stories of our neighbors, the stories of colleagues and people, and how much people are searching for and desperate for peace because of the hardships that they face, because of the struggles that they've endured. And I wonder how many of you, that's true for you today, that you come in here week after week and you're carrying those burdens, you're carrying those challenges, you're carrying those struggles, and what you're hopefully leaving here with today is a reminder that in the midst of those, though they still may be waiting for you, on the other side of those doors, you can have peace. And it doesn't make sense. It transcends understanding. But that's what we have. And that's how we should carry ourselves. It's such an incredible picture. We think of, of power being unleashed in our lives and we have all these other images that the world has shown us. This is how you demonstrate power. This is how you demonstrate influence and strength. And all of a sudden the gospel says, well, actually this is what it looks like. <laughs> it, it looks like loving your neighbor. It looks like going into communities. It looks like holiness. It looks like an unwavering trust. It looks like people who understand that their lives are built upon grace and peace. That's the journey we are embarking on through this Lenten season. That as we open up those devotional guides or when we come in here, we once again fix our eyes on the cross and we seek his will in our lives. We seek his power to be revealed and unleashed within us as we try to follow him so that we can once again discover these promises of grace and peace. My hope and my prayer is that it is evident in your life today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we're grateful for all that you're doing. We're grateful for all that you have done. And we ask God that you would continue to lead us and guide us in a way that brings you glory. God, that you would help us to surrender from the things of this world and be able to wholeheartedly follow you, God, to run after you, 
with passion, with devotion, with commitment. God, that for those of us that are here today, that perhaps we've just lost a sense of just how significant this gospel can be and just how impactful it can be. God, I pray that you would awaken our hearts and our minds to that truth, that you would set us apart, that we would not blend in, but that we would look different. God, for those that come in here today hurting, those that come in here today with with a sense of, of hardship and trial and difficulty, God, that they would be reminded of your promises, that your grace is sufficient even in their weaknesses. God, that even when they go wanting, even when they cry out for you, to find alleviation from these burdens and alleviation from this despair, God, that even in the midst of those cries, you grant peace. May that be something we all experience today as we seek to turn our hearts and our minds and our souls towards you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.